The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Angelo Valendez. He's author of The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. Dr. Valendez is a physician and researcher at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also the founder of Advanced Care Planning Decisions, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to encouraging the conversation through the use of videos. He lives in Boston, Massachusetts, but right now we're talking to him in Hawaii. Welcome to the show. Show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Good morning. Great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, well, first of all, I read your book. I've watched you on your uh, videos. Uh, you absolutely have a revolutionary new approach to end-of-life care. And just uh, I did a lot of that work way back in the even the 80s, uh, and things have changed, or maybe things haven't changed that much, but you're beginning to make those changes in terms of the choices we make at end-of-life. And as I understand it, most Americans, 80% of Americans, would like to die in their own home, spend the end of their life in their own home with their loved ones, but they don't do that. They end up in hospitals with all kinds of medical, technological uh, tools to prolong their life. Okay. Uh, But that isn't necessarily the best way to end your life or to to have end-of-life care. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, The Conversation, that's the title of your book. What is The Conversation? The Conversation is probably one of the least used tools in medicine, unfortunately. It's a frank discussion that a provider and a patient and a family have about their medical options when it comes to end-of-life care. You know, the facts that you mentioned is something that every social worker and every clinician in America knows. Uh, Most patients don't want to die in hospitals. They don't want to die tethered to machines. But the facts are that most people are still dying in our hospitals, often tethered to machines and with a good deal of suffering. So the conversation is an honest discussion where a provider and a patient talk about what's important to them. What are their hopes and fears in terms of medicine and where they would want to die? So it's unfortunately something that we don't see enough of in our healthcare system because it's not a patient-centered healthcare system. It's really doctor-centered. And the book, The Revolution, in the title, subtitle of the book is really to put the patient back at the center of healthcare in our country. Yeah. Well, as you describe it, it seems not simple, but it seems like something, okay, this is something that we can do and it would be supported by doctors and social workers and psychologists and hospitals, but apparently it isn't. And I think I kind of want to break this down because as you talk about in your book, I mean, communication is the issue and that's a real issue between doctor and patient and families, which we don't seem to have a handle on, it seems to me, uh, 
in, as part of our medical treatment. That's, that's, and when you have the conversation, and it's another piece of it too, we, maybe we can discuss both of those things. But doctor-patient communication is, is really not too good. I mean, people, it seems to me, or my experiences with family and professionally is that this conversation about end-of-life care that you're talking about doesn't come until the end when things are usually chaotic and catastrophic and people are vulnerable and decisions are made not really based on understanding what the the end of life care means so can we let's let's get in let's talk about that because i think that's a, that whole communication issue understanding what it means in terms of end of life care from your physician absolutely so communication between patients and doctors is not prioritized and i think most people realize that because when they're trying to talk with their doctors they realize wow, this doctor really can't talk to me. Um, and the, the facts are that we don't prioritize it when we're picking medical students. You know, when we look at applications for medical schools, we look at, did they take organic chemistry? Did they take the hardest physics course? Um, things that aren't really relevant later on when, when these medical students are now seeing patients. No one ever asked me during residency whether or not I could actually speak to my patient but they sure did ask me if I could do uh, codes, if I could do certain procedures. And yet when it came to the most important procedure in healthcare, talking to your patient, um, I was never quizzed on whether I could actually speak to someone. So what about if you're really... a good doctor, but what about you? Let's say you are a good doctor <laughs> and you are a great surgeon, but maybe you don't have the ability necessarily to communicate. You're just not a good communicator, but you are a great physician, then what do you do? Then what I tell people is, look, this isn't just the realm of the doctor. (laughs) This is a team-based effort. And I think that's where we find the great communicators in healthcare, social workers, nurses, chaplains, who can actually help the doctor to have this conversation. When we talk about this discussion, it's not easy. I'll be honest, I've been doing this for years, and I still have a tough time at it. But why not involve the great communicators in our healthcare system who are inevitably the social worker and a nurse and have them help us have this conversation? I often start this process of having the discussion um, with my nurse or with a social worker first, talking with the patient or the family, introducing the ideas of, you know, what's a good day for you today? What's important in your life? What are your hopes and fears in terms of medical care? And then they start the process of having this discussion. They might be one of the videos that we have. And then I'll come in and then sort of in the tail end of that process, uh, further discuss sort of the medical prognosis and some of the medical um, context for the patient. So I think we have to remember it's not just about the doctor. It's about a healthcare team. Other team members may be better communicators. Dr. Valendez, what about, you said it's still difficult for you, and what you're in your 40s, you've been practicing for a long time now, so what, is, what, is, what are the, still the most difficult issues for you when you're talking to, well, the family and or the patient, or are you talking to the patient, I should say the patient and or the family? Well, I think there are two difficulties for me still. The first is, as a physician, I was taught to heal and to treat. And so to start this conversation often means I have to acknowledge my own limitations, but I also acknowledge my own mortality. And that's something every physician struggles with. And as a physician, I need to get over that, but it's still difficult. The other issue that pops up a lot is misperceptions 
of what medical technology can achieve. So often in our television and in our media programs, we hear about the next new thing, the next miracle cure. So often when I'm having these conversations with patients and families, they have an understanding of what's possible that is not possible. And so to ground us and to, to, to be more informed about these issues and about these technologies, it really takes a long time. And sometimes words aren't enough. Sometimes you have to use images. And I spend a good deal of my time creating video images to better inform patients and families. Yeah, I want to talk about those videos. But before we do, because you mentioned uh, you know, that we don't have maybe, we're not really, in, as, as uh, patients or as lay people, we're really not informed about what, what the end-of-life technologies involve. And I think that's really true. You talk about, I think, in your book about this, you know, there's the, you can get uh, CPR and you can, you know, tube feeding and, you know, all the, just, you know, the whole works when it comes to trying to prolong life. Or you can get something in between or you can just get kind of, I don't know if they call it palliative care, but you get, you know, comfort care. And so those are kind of generally the three choices you may have at the end. Is, is that true? Absolutely. And, but here's some of the misperceptions. For example, uh, with the comfort-oriented care, where you're really focused on the quality of, your, of life, many people think that, say, if you were to elect hospice services, that means you're going to die sooner. In fact, medical research suggests that people who choose hospice often live longer than people who do not choose hospice. This is so counterintuitive and a remarkable fact that uh, a large study coming out of my own hospital showed that people with lung cancer who elected more comfort-oriented procedures actually lived longer than those who chose aggressive, life-prolonging interventions. And so I tell people, I want to be aggressive. I want to aggressively promote your quality of life, make sure you're not suffering, and make sure you're in control of your health care. So these are right, some so of the perceptions. And you have all right, you have those statistics. Why don't doctors? It seems to me you never really hear that. You don't hear that that those statistics that you may live longer, six months longer, three months longer, two months longer if you have hospice care rather than all of these, rather than all the technological care that's available. And but and I want to add that because this one of the articles that I read about you in the Atlantic, or it was an interview with you, which I thought was interesting, um, was that we doctors actually torture their patients at the end and, and not willingly, but they become engaged in that, like, you know, all out, we have to save a person who's really not savable, create false hope, and then actually torture them with sometimes chemotherapy or all this stuff. And I mean, I had that experience with a, a best friend to a dying of ovarian cancer. And I used just those words. I said to uh, a friend of mine, I think they tortured her at the end. She wasn't going to live more than a few months, and it was just torture. And I don't think that that's a unique, I guess, because uh, obviously that's what's mentioned in the article. So could, let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, we've designed a healthcare system where doctors are put in a really uncomfortable position. The assumption is that any patient walking into my hospital wants everything done unless the patient or the family tells me to stop. This is an untenable position that we've placed many doctors in because all of us have gotten into this profession to do the right thing, to help and heal people. But when, you're, when you've designed a system where the default is do everything until someone tells you to stop, 
that's a problem when many people with an advanced illness end up in our hospitals. We need to, we need to train our doctors to understand what the facts are about options for medical care at the end of life. And even though we're calling about it, we're calling it end of life, I'm talking about good life. I mean, look, we're all going to die. One day I'm going to die as well. So we need to have a good ending to our life as well. So it's really, really difficult uh, when you've designed a system to do everything for doctors to stop unless people actually have a discussion, fill out the appropriate forms, and advocate for themselves. You know, the book is essentially the conversations that I have with my fellow colleagues, doctors in the hospitals, behind closed doors, when we say, I can't believe I just did that to a frail elderly patient with advanced dementia. What's going on here? The stories in the book are seven patients that I took care of personally and their end-of-life experience, which was which hinged on whether or not they had a discussion with their doctor. I hope people who read the book are outraged about what's going on in our hospitals. And so part of the book is for people to empower themselves and not to wait for the healthcare system to start this discussion, but for people to empower themselves, to know their options, and to start being the drivers of healthcare, not the healthcare system to be at the center of care. So when do you begin that conversation? Do you begin it when you're young? I mean, people can have catastrophic illnesses when they're 25 or 30, or they can get in a terrible car accident, and some of these issues come up long before you're 65 or older or before you're elderly. So how do you, you know, and specifically, what should the conversation be about? I mean, maybe we can use the examples from your book, the case histories that, that you use, because each one of those patients was very different. They came from different backgrounds, their circumstances were different, and their ages were different, and their family situations were different. Absolutely. I tell people this all the time. Why not begin the conversation as soon as you have contact with the healthcare system? Suppose you're a 21-year-old just out of college. Why not, when you go see your your doctor or your nurse practitioner and you're having a history and physical, why not talk about this idea of, look, you know, we want to honor and respect your choices in terms of medical care, so I'm going to introduce some ideas to you about what's important to you that you might not have to think about now or in the next decade, but when you're 60 or 70 or 80, these might be prominent issues in your mind, so why not start the conversation now so that when you do become ill or you find yourself in an emergency room or if you're diagnosed with an advanced illness, it's not the first time you've heard about this. Why not make this the new norm in healthcare where it's a routine part of what we expect the healthcare system to provide? So how do we start? How do we start? How how do we we specifically start with some? The most important thing about how do we start is to talk about options for medical care, to talk about the questions that I lay out in the book. For example, for someone who has a serious illness, I would say, what's a good day for you today? What's important to your life? If you weren't able to do those sort of things, what would be important, quality of life or quantity of life? What would your medical options be? Again, it doesn't have to be a medically, I like to say that word, medically uh, discussion, but just a discussion about who you are, what brings you happiness, and then talk about in the event that you didn't have those activities, what sort of things would you want me to honor and respect in terms of choices for you in your medical care? 
let's can we talk about because uh, one of them that stands out because she was young i think it was she was 33 years old uh dying of she had breast cancer and it was end stage for her and uh her choice and her choice was very different let's say because i think it, if you cite just a couple of examples it makes it easy for people to understand or listeners to understand but take her for instance as opposed to i think one of the other uh patients was a older gentleman uh from sure. a different background so, yeah and didn't have to you know young children which this young woman did so let's compare the two in terms of their choices absolutely. so the first story in the book is a gentleman named Taras who was a 78 year old gentleman who had widely metastatic lung cancer and unfortunately for Taras he had seen scores of physicians oncologists pulmonologists his primary care doctor and unfortunately not a single one of them actually ever had a discussion with him about what was important to him now that his illness was advanced. Adaras was a single gentleman. Uh, he did not have a family. And so by the time I saw him, I'm a hospital doctor, by the time I saw him, he was incapacitated. He could no longer speak. He was delirious, and he had advanced cancer. And so without any indications of what he would have wanted in terms of medical care, we had to assume that he wanted everything done. And he proceeded to have his heart stop. He uh, underwent a code. Uh, by the time that uh, we treated him, he had a tube or catheter in every orifice of his body in the intensive care unit. It was a horrible way to go uh, because at that point, um, all the interventions that we were offering him, you know, these fixes, never fixed the whole patient. And so it was one of the first patients that I took care of that I had to ask myself, what are we doing here in healthcare? We're not talking to people early and often to hear their thoughts about medical care. Uh, the other patient that you mentioned was a 33-year-old uh, woman um, with three children uh, who had widely metastatic breast cancer. And uh, when she was admitted to the hospital, I did have this discussion with her, and we did talk about what a good day for her was. Uh, she was in intractable pain, uh, but she wanted to go on because she wanted one more holiday dinner with her children, which was uh, she was looking forward to an Easter dinner with her kids, uh, which was only a month away. And so we had this discussion, and we talked about, look, if your heart should stop beating, uh, would you want us to attempt CPR? And indeed, she wanted to do everything possible because for her, uh, having that one last dinner with her children was so critically important to, to her conception of a good life. And even though I knew that if her heart stopped beating, it was unlikely that we would be able to resuscitate her, I agreed that uh, we would do everything possible to make sure she can make it to that last dinner. Um, unfortunately, she, she wasn't able to make it to that last dinner. Uh, but, uh, you know, we honored and respected her choices. At the end of the day, that's what health, the healthcare system should try its best to do, is to align preferences that patients have with the care delivered. We live in, in a healthcare system where what is happening to our patients is clearly not aligned with what most patients want when we ask them, and that is a medical error, and we need to be more open about talking about it. Yeah, and I think it's so difficult because I think particularly families, and sometimes when it's a younger person, there's always this guilt, I didn't do everything that I could, but we really have to understand, like, 
what is everything that you could actually mean? So, which is what obviously I want to get into your videos because I think that those end of life, those extraordinary interventions that we think may prolong our life, uh, and really may prolong our lives, but we are in pain, tortured at the end. CPR, you mentioned tube feeding, you mentioned in the book, in your videos, which I found fascinating. It's like you really actually show people, this is what CPR means. This is what tube feeding is. It's not what you stick a tube in and you get fed and you feel fine or, you know, you're just, you're being fed in a different way. But there are a lot of other things that accompany these kinds of interventions. And and that's what some of the things that your videos point out. So let's, you know, I want to, because that I think is, I don't know, it seems to me that you're one of the very few who actually um, do, show these videos to patients and or families. So ex- explain, to our, explain to us what they are. Yeah, so what we try to do is to uh, empower patients through the use of videos. Look, your healthcare system and your clinicians are unlikely to start this discussion. So why should you have to suffer because of that? So what we're trying to do is empower patients and families with videos. So as part of the book, there's a video uh, on YouTube. It's the conversationbook.org. And what the video does is go through what questions you need to ask yourself, but actually what are your options. And we show uh, a simulation of CPR, of intubation. We talk about limited, the middle category, limited medical care and comfort-oriented care. So you can actually see what those things look like. And I think it's important for people to recognize that in today's world, you need to empower yourself to know your options. Uh, and sometimes when you hear about your medical options, for example, so often with patients with advanced dementia or advanced Alzheimer's disease, I'm having a conversation with a daughter uh, who has been taking care of mom. And when I say, you know, mom's no longer able to have food um, through her mouth because it's going down the wrong pipe, You know, the daughter might say, well, you need to feed mom, put a feeding tube in. Well, I want to make sure that you understand what a feeding tube is, that there's no sensation of eating for mom, but also what are the medical facts? Uh, For example, feeding tubes do not improve the quality of life for people with dementia. It doesn't improve survival. In fact, it really doesn't help. Uh, So we need to be sure that when we're asking for these things, everybody understands what's involved. The other use of videos that I've been doing with my patients and families that many patients find really helpful is when you do have the conversation, when you have this discussion, go ahead and use your iPhone or your tablet and record yourself talking about this. So record yourself saying, hi, I have advanced cancer, or if I'm, if I'm not no longer able to have a conversation with my loved ones due to Alzheimer's disease, I wouldn't want aggressive, life-prolonging interventions. I wouldn't want CPR, or I wouldn't want to be fed through a tube. You know, go ahead and make that video, and then email it to your loved ones, to your doctor, uh, to, you know, in, in an ideal world, and in soon, I think, we'll be able to upload these videos to people's electronic medical record. And then what will happen is, when you do find yourself at 3 in the morning in the emergency room, a clinician can actually go and view this video to understand what your options were. But as a doctor, I can now call that daughter, say, who lives in California, and instead of asking that daughter, hey, what did you think mom wanted, or did you ever have a conversation, I could actually say, you know, mom actually left us a video. Let's see what she said. And it's a very different conversation now because 
now the daughter doesn't have this burden or this guessing game, but rather can go to the videotape and actually see that mom didn't want these things or mom did want these things. Either way, it's to respect and honor people's preferences. So I tell people, go ahead and use your camera instead of texting all the time. Why don't you make a video and email it to people telling what's important to you and what sort of things you would or would not want if you became critically ill? Yeah, I think it's also helpful when you have families, big families, people who are involved in making the end of life, end of care or end of life decisions, and they uh, argue amongst themselves. So here you have actually what mom or dad or whoever it is, a family member is saying, this is what I wanted. And so it probably helps to uh, uh, alleviate some of that, the, the family stress. But what would be Dr. Valenti's downside? I was thinking about this before the interview and I was thinking, well, what if you show people your video, you actually show them what CPR is, you know, you have to, you know, you break your, you know, breaking your, the patient's ribs be, uh, or, you know, a tube feeding where you get infections. And there are all kinds of all of those things that, that are a result of some of these procedures or interventions. Um, you get somebody who would benefit from it, who has a 90% chance of getting better. And, um, you know, and so, but they see this and they, they, but they, I would never want that after seeing, you know, the visuals. Um, but, you know, which would be different than somebody you're, who wants it, they're not going to live more than, you know, one month, two months, three months, you know, you have a pretty good idea of that. So, you know, you know, is there a downside? Could there be a downside to app for people actually visualizing? So yeah. So you're absolutely right. You have to make sure that the videos are watched in the appropriate context and that the facts are stated. So for example, in our video, uh, the video uh, that goes with the book, um, I specifically say, if you're healthy, the chances of you surviving CPR are great. It's wonderful if you're a healthy person who doesn't have a chronic terminal illness. The chances of you surviving CPR, if done appropriately and quickly, is wonderful. It's amazing what modern medicine can do. But if you have an advanced illness, for, for instance, um, advanced metastatic cancer, the chances of surviving CPR are much less. And so we talk about these sort of things in the video, but more importantly, as I say in the book, everything needs to be tailored to the individual patient. And that's why you should watch this video with your doctor, because your doctor will be the one who will tell you, hey, look, you're a healthy 85-year-old. You just ran the Honolulu Marathon. You know, the chances of surviving this with this intervention is very good. But if you're a 32-year-old with widely metastatic cancer, who has failed first-line therapy and second-line therapy, then the chances of surviving some of these procedures are quite small. So our videos, which are studied in a research context first, uh, have been studied in a couple of thousand patients. We actually find that people are more informed. And when they do have a good chance of surviving these interventions, many patients agree to have these procedures. But that's where this it hinges on, whether or not this procedure has a marginal benefit or if it has a high benefit. So you're right. Uh, patients need to know what the facts are. I fear that too often uh, we as providers don't tell them the risks and benefits of these interventions, and so they're left to make decisions in the dark. Yeah. I, we, there are really 
it, when it comes down to it, most or many much of the time, it's not an informed decision. It really isn't an informed decision, and this is what you're talking about. I mean, I think the thing I'm glad you brought up. I mean, the age thing is important because you can be a healthy 70 year old and have really good chances of surviving well, but a very very sick 25 year old who isn't going to survive. But I think attitudinally. Um, at least my experience as a hospital social worker, when it's a young person, no matter what they have, no matter how sick they are, there's this kind of like, we're going to try and save them at all costs. And at the end, really do torture them. I'm getting back to that word torture. But, um, and I think it's difficult. I don't, in your experience, is it difficult when it's, when it is a younger person, let's say, who, who is really, really sick, who isn't going to survive to really be able to you know, act on this informed decision. Yeah, you know, um, at the end of the day, this truly is about informed consent and patient autonomy. And uh, unfortunately, far too often, people are not informed. But you're right. When it comes to a younger patient, it's hard for all of us. Um, I'll be honest, in the hospital setting, you know, with that 33-year-old woman with widely metastatic breast cancer, when we were doing these procedures on her, I looked around and it was myself, um, a few of the residents, a few of the nurses, and we were all pretty much as old as she was. And it's so hard not to think, you know, what if this were me? What would I want? And that's what happens to all of us when we're in the hospital, when we see someone who reminds us of our mom or our dad or ourselves. You know, I have two young daughters. If I were put in the position of widely metastatic cancer, I would probably want that last dinner with my, my, the last Easter dinner with my kids as well. So it's something that we struggle with as well. But at the end of the day, we need to honor and respect our patients' choices. So if we're not having a conversation with them, we'll never know what they want. And that's probably the most important thing in healthcare is to hear their voices and to make sure that we preserve and honor those voices. Well, and to do that, uh, obviously, we recommend your book, The uh, the Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. We have to say goodbye, but it's Dr. Angelo Valendez, and the uh, website is theconversationbook.org, or we can go to your website, angelovalendez.com, for more information. Uh, if I, I think I've given out all of the websites that they can refer to. Um, Are there others that you want to mention? Uh, Nope. Those are the two websites. And, uh, you know, the book's available everywhere, every bookstore in America and on Amazon.com and BarnesandNobles.com. Terrific. It's been great talking to you today. Thanks so so much for our conversation. It was definitely. (laughs) Thank you. Great speaking with you. Great to talk to you. We're going to uh, say, take, we're not going to say goodbye. We're just going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. 
Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Lyle Back. Uh, Our topic this morning is Ten Shades of Grey, Secrets Most Plastic Surgeons Will Never Reveal. Uh, Dr. Back is a plastic surgeon himself. He is a Philadelphia Area Board Certified Plastic Surgeon. Uh, he was not afraid to pull back the proverbial surgical curtain to give lay people the real reality of cosmetic surgery. Um, he has been in private practice for over 20 years. Uh, he specializes in the full range of the most modern and state-of-the-art cosmetic surgery procedures and non-surgical cosmetic enhancement techniques available today. Uh, he's also performed reconstructive surgery and Operation Smile in Vietnam. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Back. Catherine, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so you're a plastic surgeon, but now you're kind of like uh, the truth teller in terms of what does plastic surgery really mean? And I just before we got on the show, I told you I'm in Miami and I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of ladies who obviously have had plastic surgery, but also men as well. So what are some of the secrets behind plastic surgery? It's not so simple. You get your nose done, you get a tummy tuck, you get the cellulite thing, and then you look gorgeous and everything is fine. Not true. No, it's (laughs) it's not really true. You know, this is plastic surgery has at its heart, it's a serious business. And uh, we're dealing with uh, medical issues, health issues, surgical issues, uh, some real uh, health considerations that have to be taken into account. 
Of course, those kinds of things don't get played up in the media, and uh, culturally, we like to think of plastic surgery as kind of having a lot of pizzazz and sizzle, and it's kind of fun, and people like to talk about it. It's involved with our celebrities and so forth. But there are some true, you know, serious, hard facts that people need to know about. We don't want to scare people, and we don't want to make people think, oh, my God, this is, this is, this is really tough stuff here. But by the same token, um, there's, a, there's an undermining of the true medical natures uh, that gets perpetuated a little bit with the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the show business side of it all. And uh, I think it's important for a plastic surgeon to reel that in a little bit, maybe not, you know, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a confronting way or in a mean way or in an overly serious or somber way, but nevertheless, I think it's important for patients to understand that there are some serious things that they need to know about. Dr. Beck, why do you think that most plastic surgeons will, don't reveal those things? Because they want more business? They just want, you know, they want their practice to, to grow and thrive, and, and so they don't really want to tell you or help you to make an informed decision about whether or not, you know, you want to have this, the procedure done? or. Um, what's the reason behind it for not really kind of revealing the truth behind uh, having plastic surgery or what the ramifications can be? Well, I don't, I don't think any plastic surgeon wants to withhold information that would make an informed consent uh, a compromise, and I don't think that's happening. But I do think that there is a bias and there is a tendency to sort of maybe overemphasize the the nicer sides and the pizzazz sides and kind of uh, soft pedal, uh, you know, the more serious medical sides. Even some of the names we use for procedures uh, take away a little bit from their seriousness. For example, one of, the, one of the biggest operations we do, it's probably one of the most serious, and I would dare say it may be the biggest operations most cosmetic surgeons do is called a tummy tuck. But if you hear the name tummy tuck, it sounds like you go in for about 10 minutes and you come out looking great. That's not to say it's not a fantastic operation and people benefit greatly from it, but, but it has some serious things that need to be discussed. I do think the, the tendency toward uh, wanting to have a thriving practice and a busy practice does create a, uh, a little bit of a bias to maybe, you know, not be so overt in discussing these things. I do but, think, though, eventually, in one way or another, they do get discussed. Uh, I, I would never consider that a, uh, an ethical board-certified plastic surgeon would not make these things apparent uh, to a prospective patient, uh, but perhaps not so much up front, maybe, as, as would be ideal, perhaps. So ideally, I, what I hear you saying is have real, realistic expectations. Have the conversation with your doctor. Be a real, realistic. Tummy tuck does sound like kind of like you know, yeah, right, you know, tummy tuck, easy, uh, not a big uh, surgical procedure necessarily, but as you mentioned, uh, you're going to have discomfort, you're going to have dis- pain. If you talk about it beforehand, then the patient isn't going to be as disgruntled afterwards either because they are going to be in pain, but if you expect to be in pain for a certain amount of time, uh, things are going to go more smoothly, it would seem to me, than if you Absolutely. thought Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. I think the more information you have beforehand and the more realistic and honest that information, uh, the greater your ability to process it and deal with it. And also there's the trust factor that when your doctor says, look, this is going to hurt, um, you can, you're prepared for that, but you also know that when he says this isn't going to hurt, that you can trust that, that he's, that he's a you know a reliable guy, that 
that is uh, a straight shooter with you. Yeah, I always respect my doctor. I'm not necessarily cosmetic surgery because I haven't had that yet, but uh, you know, you're going to have pain. We go, you know, one to ten. Is it going to be a five or a six? How long is it going to last? You know, on the average, uh, that's so much more helpful uh, than just sort of being told everything's going to be fine. And because uh, that's really, I mean, it may be fine, but there's a whole procedure you have to go through. You talk about and this is a big one. Well, bad scarring because that is an issue, I guess, with cosmetic surgery. And I and, absolutely, yeah. Is it you know, something? Um, yeah, go ahead. You, you see a plastic surgeon, you go to a cosmetic surgeon, and of course you should have an expectation that this guy is a master in hiding scars, minimizing scars, making them as invisible you know, as possible. Uh, that's, our, that's our field. That's our expertise. We're supposed to be the best at scars of anybody that there is. But we get bad scars too, and that's because a lot of what happens in the, in the process of healing is really not as much in the control of your plastic surgeon as you would like to believe. Genetics play a big factor. Uh, individual, uh, uh, an individual's per, a person's tendency towards scarring or not scarring, big factor. The operation itself, the length of the scar, the location of the scar, all these things play a role. And of course, as a board-certified plastic surgeon with, with a lot of experience, your doctor is, is going to use every technique, skill, trick, uh, nuance that he can to minimize your scars. But having a realistic uh, approach and a realistic view of this, you have to realize as a patient, sometimes things don't work out exactly as we hope, and sometimes there is a scar that's not the way we like. And um, I think you have to go into an operation expecting, you know, there's a possibility, however slim, that that could happen, and um, to not have that perception perhaps goes along with some of the other things that we talked about, about not really having a true appreciation for, for some of the serious aspects that are involved in, in these types of procedures. What about in terms of the individual patient aging? Is it, do older patients tend to scar more than younger patients? Do they heal faster? Or is that not a piece of the puzzle? You know, age doesn't really pay, play a role. Um, it really depends on the person. There are people uh, up in the years who are extremely healthy, who heal well, heal beautifully. Uh, and unfortunately, there are younger people that are the exact opposite of that. It really has to do with the individual's physiology um, and really their, their overall health and uh, response to, to surgery. Um, I, I, don't, I think age is not really a factor. Uh, can you hear me? I'm losing you a bit. Oh, yeah, I can hear you. I'm sorry. Okay, good. No, that's okay. The next thing that I was shocked, I have to say, because I didn't realize you still use this as, as surgeons, as plastic surgeons, but leeches. You, you mentioned that you have a secret weapon that you use when things go wrong, and they are leeches? Yes. They're <laughs> still a very, very important tool to plastic surgeons and have been for many years. So how does that work? What do you do with the leeches? Well, don't say it with such disdain in your voice. <laughs> the leeches, leeches have a bad rap. They need yeah. better PR. Okay, uh, so know, here's your chance. Give it to us. Okay, I'm going to tell you that they are yeah. beautiful creatures. They are amazing creatures uh, that are, are truly beautifully uh, designed in what they do and how they do. And I'll tell you why they're so important, especially for reconstructive surgeons. You've, you've seen a lot of the news lately about uh, people getting entire face transplants. 
And, of course, there are hand transplants now, and uh, they're working on feet and legs. Uh, but for many years, we've been putting back, because of traumatic uh, incidents, people's ears and fingers. Sometimes during these operations, which can be very long, and, of course, the stakes are quite high, the blood flow through the reattached part becomes very sluggish. It's, it's sort of a side effect of the, of the whole process. And what, a, what leeches can do is that if the blood flow becomes dangerously low and the reattached part, which, by the way, also could be in a, in a breast reconstruction where tissues are moved from one part of the body to reconstruct the breast loss to cancer, uh, the leeches are able to draw out some of this blood in a way that sort of gets the uh, engine started, sort of gets the blood moving again. And after a short application of, of the leeches to to draw some of this blood in a very gentle and a very innocuous way, uh, the entire reconstruction can be salvaged. And that could be, you know, a finger or, a, or, or really even an entire uh, reconstructed face. Uh, the leeches are um, very, very good at doing their job. They have a tiny amount of little anesthetic uh, that when they attach, so there's no pain. Um, and for each of them, the amount of uh, sluggish blood or clotted blood that they can draw off, it comes off very, very quickly and in a timely fashion, and then they can be gently removed. Uh, it, they, they are amazing, beautiful creatures. And uh, when I was doing reconstructive surgery as a major part of my practice, uh, I carried the toll-free number to call Leeches USA in my wallet so that in any given week or month, if, uh, should the time arise, I pulled that card out and, and had my leeches in, in under a, a few hours. Well, that's amazing. And I guess now all I'm thinking about, the, what, the doctors, was it the 19th century when they were using leeches? Uh, well, to, yeah, yeah. You know, way back, yeah, way back when, I, I, I'm thinking probably it even goes back to the time when they were doing things in the medieval ages like cupping, where there was a belief that by you know drawing off the the evil humors and and the the negative uh, energies and so forth that were inside the body that you could cure, um, I don't know how true that that was or is, uh, but we definitely know that uh, by reestablishing blood flow, we can salvage an entire reconstructive operation in a way that no medication and no surgical technique can duplicate. Uh, that I mean I I had no idea, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners. Didn't either, but as you know, if they want, did you say Leeches USA is the uh, a, a website that you can go to if you want to? Yes, learn? they're yeah. they're in West they're in Westbury, New York, and they've been around for a long, long time, and they've been quietly helping plastic surgeons for many, many years save many, many a patient a lot of heartache. All right, now we're going to switch to cellulite because cellulite, which is, I would say. The majority of my friends, girlfriends, are always complaining about cellulite, but there's not really, according to you, real good news about fixing cellulite. Well, there's, there's a couple of things about cellulite that bother me. One is, as you pointed out, this is a condition, it probably affects, I don't know, maybe 80 to 90% of adult women in the United States. And do you know there's still, despite that, controversy and some sort of discussion in the medical community as to whether or not it's even real. Uh, I recently uh, just did a quick spot check at uh, WebMD and saw that the very first thing they said about cellulite was, boy, gee, you, you would think it's a serious condition with such a serious-sounding medical name. And I thought, well, what, what an insulting, <laughs> what an insulting <laughs> thing to say. You've got literally tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars being spent every year 
by women all across the world on a condition that the medical community is saying, gee, we're not really sure if it exists. Well, let me tell you, it, it absolutely exists. It's absolutely real. And it's a very, very, uh, you know, sort of disturbing and troublesome problem. Um, and, you know, like all things, first, you have to respect the problem. You have to identify that it's real before you can really make some good inroads. And I, I suspect that this is still a little bit of a problem. It's getting the... The, the diagnosis is get, still getting a little bit of a bum's rush and not really getting the, the attention it really deserves. And that leaves it to the charlatans to step into that power vacuum and say, hey, guess what? We take it serious, and look at this cream we have. So, you know, there's, I think, you know, probably hundreds of potentially uh, useless, I'd say mostly useless uh, cellulite uh, types of treatments. There are a lot of things, though, that work temporarily, and that's because one of the things that can help cellulite look better is the massaging of the tissues to sort of rearrange the lumpy fat under the skin and decreasing the amount of fluid in the skin. So any treatment that does that will quote-unquote work. We have a few things in the, that are sort of circulating around. Some of them work sort of okay. I have a difficulty with some of these techniques because they are being promoted to the public as being sort of non-invasive or minim minimally invasive treatments, but they're really not. They're invasive. I mean, if you're making a cut in someone's skin and threading a laser wire underneath their skin, that's not minimally, minimally invasive to me. Um, but, but there are some techniques that are showing some promise, and one of my favorites right now, uh, because of the science behind it, is a treatment called Verju, V-E-R-J-U. Uh, which is a special green light laser that I'm really excited about. And, and I, I, it, it does such amazing things that I, I almost can't believe that it really works. But it's, it's, it's an amazing technology that I think is actually going to open a lot of doors to um, sort of a, a new, whole new area of investigation into, into how lasers can work on the body. It's, it's quite fascinating. How long will it last, or how long does it last once you've had the procedure? What are we talking well, you know, about? Yeah. yeah, you know, like, this is, this is actually another one of those ten shades of gray secrets, which is really the bigger question, which is how long does anything last that we do? Um, there are some treatments that are temporary. This one is not. But really, all the treatments we do are not going to last forever. No matter how much liposuction we do, if someone's diet isn't so good or their activity level isn't so good or if they're on a medication that causes them to tend to gain weight, you know, things are going to change. Even this treatment, the Verjoux Green Light Laser, although it causes the fat cells to empty, improving the look of cellulite and actually diminishing inches off the hips or the stomach, uh, you know, with time, given the right set of circumstances, these things can come back. Unfortunately, I, I, I can turn back the clock and I can make people thinner and I can get rid of cellulite and I can lift things and tighten things. And, but, you know, I can't stop time. Time moves on and things change. So we just hope that people can get a, a nice run out of whatever we do. And most of the time they do. Well, you just mentioned something that I think is really important. You can all, you do what you do, but the individual, the patient, the client they they have to do to do uh, uh, they have to do their part as well. You know, you do the surgery, let's say, or uh, talking about maybe facelifts, which I think you had said that say they last on an average of ten years. But 
you have to eat well and sleep well and take care of yourself and maintain your weight and do all the things that are going to enhance the procedure. And if you don't do that, it would seem to me, or that's what I hear you saying, is that, you know what, it may not last as long or it's not going to work as well. So it's kind of, you know, you have to work with the surgery. The patient does as well. Of course. And, you know, and sometimes it's not really like we don't want to put blame there. You know, it's not your fault. Yeah. You could have a me- you could you could develop a medical condition that has as a side effect weight gain. You could be on a you could be on a type of medication uh, that drops your metabolism down. Uh, I mean these these things happen. But you know it's funny people will go to the gym and diet, work out like crazy, get get thin, get slender, get in shape, and they would never think for a minute. Okay, well now that I've gotten the body of my dreams. I can just do whatever I want because it's going to stay like that forever without me doing a thing. No one would ever think that. That would be ridiculous. But unfortunately, I think sometimes people think that a little bit about cosmetic surgery. But it's no different. You know, it's really no different. What about people's skin tone is different, like uh, elasticity, for example. Are there any times when a uh, a patient will come in and want to have a facelift and you would be able to... um, kind of ascertain that, you know, there's the skin, the elasticity wasn't good, and that you would recommend not having a facelift, say, for that reason? Well, I don't know that I would recommend not having a facelift for that reason. I think I would still be able to do them a lot of good. But what I would explain to the person is that when you have an inherent diminished elasticity in your skin, it ultimately is going to affect the degree to which that skin will stay up, stay tight, or look as firm or as pulled as one might want. So whether it's a facelift or a tummy tuck or a breast lift or something like that, what I would explain to the person is is that there are things about them in their skin and the way their skin will respond that might not really enable us to get them the result that, you know, maybe they were shooting for. So maybe we can't get the A+, plus, but we'll get like an A- minus or maybe a B+. Plus. That doesn't mean it will be bad. It just makes the patient, my partner in this, understanding that we're kind of dealing with a situation uh, that puts a tiny amount of compromise in what we could expect. Nevertheless, it's still going to be a significant improvement and uh, just puts us on the same page about realistic expectations, and that's very important. Yeah, I think that's key, and I think uh, there are a couple more. We only have a couple more minutes, but so I just want to go over these quickly. But one of the things that you say, it's better to have elective surgery, elective surgery early in the week. Why? Well, you know, for a lot of patients, um, their doctors uh, may or may not be so available. Uh, Medical facilities, one or another, might be uh, closed or have limited hours. If you have a surgery earlier in the week, you've got a doctor's office that's going to be open all week. The doctor's probably going to be more available. And the facilities certainly are going to have more more wide range of availability for hours should something be necessary. No one wants to have a problem or an emergency or, 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 or a, a troublesome situation that needs to be dealt with that's now complicated by the fact that you can't get a hold of the doctor, the facilities closed, the offices closed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I'm not and saying I think that the other happens. thing you, I'm interrupting you because we, we have yeah. a time problem here, but because the last two things you talk about being honest, the doctor has to be honest and the patient has to be honest. Doctor, if you're, I mean, the patient must, if you've had previous surgery, you say, Tell your doctor, be honest about it, uh, because he has to know what's gone and has to have the, the, the correct history. And then the doctor, 
in terms of being honest, ask them about their complication rates. I think that was a really interesting, we're gonna, I'd like to end with that one because a, a doctor who, anybody who has been practicing surgery for a period of time is going to have had some complications, am I right? Absolutely, and, and you know, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but wouldn't you want to have a doctor who has actually faced problems and faced complications and therefore has an ability to be able to deal with them? Um, no one wants to have a physician say, gee, I've never seen this before. I mean, you, you want to have a guy who knows how to do everything to take care of you, and that includes taking care of things when they go wrong, and sometimes they do go wrong. They exactly. say that that's the real mark of an expert is the guy who not only knows how to do things right, but knows how to fix them when they go wrong. And you are the expert, and we have to say goodbye. It's Dr. Lyle Back topic today has been 10 shades of gray secrets most plastic surgeons will never reveal and it's uh l lovely or l love lyleback.com is the website you can go to thanks so much for being on the show this morning thank you so much Catherine. Yeah. it's actually www.ilovelyleback.com oh okay i love thank you all right we're going to say thank goodbye thank you so much Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.